creation and life and rebellion and murder and mercy and destruction and restoration and confusion and what at times feels like utter and total chaos. This is what takes place in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And we've seen through this entire study God reveal himself in incredible and awesome ways, and it is one heck of an introduction. We've seen a God who is so big and so powerful and so awesome that he speaks and darkness turns to light. That he speaks and the earth moves and shapes and forms itself and brings forth life. But not only is he that big, but he's so intimate that he takes his hands and dips them into the ground and brings life out of nothing. That he loves and compassionately cares for every inch of his creation. We've seen a God who is grieved to the heart and burdened by sin, angered by sin, but also a God overflowing with mercy and grace. And as we've looked through these first 11 chapters of Genesis, we have seen just how awesome God really is and how that changes who we are, how that changes how we understand ourselves and also how we live and how we approach him. I think so often we go to Scripture looking for direct application of, I want to read this so it will tell me what to do or how to live. But Genesis 1-11 through doesn't give us that option. Genesis 11 says, no, you need to look to God and find out who He is so that you can know who you are, so that you can know how you should live, and so that you can know how you can approach this kind of God. And as we've seen all of this happening... Clearly, it's building toward something. That God is introducing himself for a reason, and that he's building towards some sort of plan, some sort of purpose, some sort of effort to redeem his creation that had fallen and was broken by sin. And so to close out this study, we're going to look at chapter 12. And we're going to see God approach a man named Abram, and in essence say, Hi, I'm God. And this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to do it through you. And so let's look at Genesis chapter 12. And we'll read verses 1 through 9. And this is the word of the Lord. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took his wife Sarai and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah, at the time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, Take your offspring, or to your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. 
From there, he moved to the hill country to the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward Negev. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that we don't have to wonder who you are. That you're not off in the distance expecting us to guess, but you have revealed yourself so plainly and so fully just 11 chapters into your word. That you are not a God who hides, but you are a God who desires to be known by your people. But not only that, you are a God who makes big plans and keeps those plans. In particular, you have one big plan to save and redeem the world. And we see that as early as Genesis chapter 12, you were beginning to unfurl that plan. Because that's how much you love us. That's how faithful you are. That's how assured we can be in your promises. And so, God, as we look through this, help us not only to see a story of you promising a blessing to one man and his family, but help us to see the foundations of the gospel and help us to recognize how amazing it is that you've had a plan to save us before we drew a breath. And through this, restore us to the joy of that salvation. Help us to trust in you in a way that we never have before. And through your introduction, help us to worship you as your people. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Again, we have seen so many things looking through Genesis chapter 1 through 11. We've seen a God who is a creator. We've seen a God who is a father. We've seen a God who is a judge, a righteous and holy judge who punishes sin. We've seen a God who is a redeemer and a restorer. We've seen a God who builds community, but a God who also, when necessary, breaks that community apart for the greater good. We've seen all the intricacies of the nature of God, and we've stepped back and allowed him to tell us who he is. Because the temptation so often is to want to tell God who he should be. And so we've looked at the full revelation of God in these early passages of Scripture, seeing him as he is revealing himself to us. And so many of these things are big and obvious. But one of the things that I think can be easily taken for granted comes up at the beginning of this chapter. And it's the fact that we have a God who speaks. The story of Abraham begins with, The Lord said to Abram. But this isn't the first time that God has spoken. In fact, these early chapters of Scripture are filled with the words of God as he speaks to his people. The very beginning, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be this and that, and all these things came forth. Let us make man in our image. We see God walking through the garden, talking with his people. We see God, when his people mess up and fall short, coming to them directly and speaking to them. We see a God who communicates. And as we all know, communication is an incredibly powerful thing. It's the basis on which our relationships are built, verbal and nonverbal. It's how we relate to one another. 
It's how kingdoms and industries have been built throughout history. Communication is quite possibly the most important tool that we have as people. But ordinarily, there are hierarchies to communication. And usually people in places of great wealth or power don't associate or communicate with people who are much further down that ladder. In old kingdoms, the king wouldn't go out himself and speak to every common person or every servant, but would use mandates and messengers to go and speak to other people because it wouldn't make sense for a king of such high esteem to speak to people of such low estate. But God. God speaks to his people and communicates to them directly. And here we see God having this big message that he wants to bring to this man named Abram. And God didn't send a messenger even though he could have. God didn't write a message up in the sky even though that absolutely would have been his prerogative. But he knew that this message was so crucial and so important that God himself met Abram where he was and spoke to him. All the introductions are done, and now it's time for revelation. And to do that, God is using the voice that brought light into darkness. The same voice that separated sea from land. He's using that voice to declare to this man that salvation is coming. But this also isn't the last time that God speaks. We see him speaking all through the Old Testament, both directly and indirectly to his people. But then in the book of Hebrews, this amazing book that bridges the gap between the Old Testament and the New, the book of Hebrews begins by saying, long time ago, God spoke in many various ways through the prophets, but now he speaks to us differently. He speaks to us through his son. His son, that in the book of John, John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and now the word has come and dwelt among us. The word of God was made flesh in Jesus and he walked around and interacted with humanity in the most personal and intimate way that he possibly could. Because God is a speaking God. And so we need to learn to worship God in that way. Recognizing that he is a God who communicates with us. He communicates with us through his word. He communicates with us through his spirit. He's communicated with us ultimately through his son that bore flesh and blood for us. God is a God who speaks. And so we need to learn to be a people who listen. Listening for the voice of God. Paying attention to the way in which God is revealing himself and leading us. Worshiping God as a God who speaks recognizing that when we sing and when we pray, we're not shouting into the darkness, but we are speaking to a God who hears us and communicates with us and interacts with us because he is a speaking and communicating God. And Abram finds that out firsthand here when it says, The Lord said to Abram, Go. Go from your father's country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now, if you've been here over the past several weeks, the last few stories that we looked at have been surrounded by genealogies. And in a short summary, genealogies are basically just lists of names. And these lists of names represent lives. 
They represent families. They represent generations. At times, they can represent multiple generations. All of these years, all these decades, all of these people, all of these lives, all summarized in just a few words. And what's crazy about them is that when you have a list of names like this, every name represents a person. Every name represents a life lived over years. Successes and failures, triumphs and tragedies, connections and relationships that aren't mentioned on these pages, lives that were changed and altered by the lives of the people that are listed in these lists of names. These are very complex and complicated people, and yet their entire existence was reduced down to somebody begot somebody. But as we go through the list of names in chapter 11 leading into chapter 12, we notice towards the end that the pattern starts to change. And in verse 27, it says, These are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred and Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram took, and Nor took wives, and the name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. And the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, was Iscah. And Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abraham, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, and his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. And so here we get a little more detail into the family life that led up to Abram. But even still, this is a very short summary of a lot of people's lives. And so verse 31 ends with what seems to be the end of the life of Terah and would just move on like normal. But then comes verse 1. The Lord speaks to Abram. Why? Why does God speak to Abram? Now, if you were here when we talked about Noah, Noah's story made sense. It said that Noah found favor in the eyes of God, that Noah was a particularly righteous man among all the people who were not, and so it would make sense for someone like Noah to be a representative of God. But Abram seems to have nothing. There's no resume of righteousness here. There's no reason to really think that Abram had any particular power or authority. He just kind of seems like another name on the list. In fact, when we're talking about his life there in those last verses of verse 11, he's kind of just part of the story, and it all seems to focus on his father. But, nonetheless, God comes to Abram. And what we see here is God laying the foundation of the gospel. This is God setting the stage for salvation, not just in the promise that he's about to give to Abram, but the fact that he comes to Abram at all. You would think that God would approach a king. If this message of salvation was going to be such a big deal, wouldn't God go to someone who is elite in society, someone who had great reputation, someone who would be more than just a blip on the radar of this genealogy? Surely God would go to someone with great wealth or cachet, someone who dominated the region so the message would get out more quickly. Surely God would have gone to somebody else. 
Because while Abram may not be the lowest of the low, he's certainly not the highest of the high. But as we see in the New Testament, the gospel is the good news that saves the lowly and the broken. The gospel is the good news that calls nobodies to be somebody for all of eternity. And I love how God words this promise here. Because he comes to Abram, he says, Go from your country and your kindred to your father's house to the land that I will show you. But verse 2 doesn't say, Because you are going to be a great nation. It says, Because I will make you a great nation. You see, God isn't concerned with taking someone else's prestige and making it shine a little brighter. God is saying, I am going to do something in this world that no one is going to be able to attribute to you because I am going to be the one who makes you a great nation. You and your barren wife who you've had no children, I am going to take you and do something profound so that one day when people look back on this, they're not going to say, oh, look at what Abram accomplished. They're going to look and say, look what God has done. And that's the message of salvation. That God doesn't save us because we've done enough to earn his favor. That God takes us from just a list of names of all the people who have come before us, who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, just like we have. And he looks at us and he says, I am going to make you new. I am going to bring darkness out of light once again, and I'm going to do it in and through you. And we find this message of hope that we have a God who calls the nobodies like us. The God who brings us from a place of spiritual poverty and lifts us up to the riches of Christ. And so even in these first two verses, there is good news reflecting the nature of the gospel. And then he gets down to the plan. And we see that we have this God who has a plan to save the world. Now imagine, Abram must have felt great excitement after verse 2. He says, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I imagine Abraham thought, sweet. This sounds really awesome. And I wouldn't blame Abram if he stopped listening right now. Because the God of the universe, the God who hung the stars in their place, the God who keeps everything spinning the way that it should, that God comes to Abram and says, hey man, you're going to be awesome. And Abram probably thought, that's really great. Let's get on with it right now. And was probably ready to pack up everything and go. But God wasn't finished yet. God didn't stop there. Because in verse 3, he says, I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And then he says this, And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, Abram's promise wasn't just for him. And God's plan wasn't just for one man or for one family. But this shouldn't catch us by surprise because it's easy to read Genesis 1 through 11 and have it very focused on humanity because it seems like that's the core thrust there. But if we really pay attention, we see from Genesis 1 to Genesis 11 that God is not only concerned with people and individual lives, but God is concerned with community and God is concerned with the cosmos. 
that he loves his creation. In fact, part of what grieved him to the heart in the story of Noah is that the sin of man had tainted the entirety of God's good and perfect creation. And so God cares about his creation from the inside out. And the same is true when it comes to our understanding of salvation. We talked last week about how we talk about church in very personal pronouns, that it's my church and I'm going to church so that I can worship and me and I and me and I. And the same thing is true about our relationship with salvation. We use very me-centric language when it comes to what it means to be saved. It's that I can have a personal relationship with Jesus so that I can go to heaven and so that I can have new life and so that I can do this and I can do this and I can do this. And we make salvation all about me. But God's plan, this good news, wasn't given to individuals. It's not about an individual salvation, but he was coming to create a community and a kingdom. And he says, Abraham, I've got this plan for you, but it's not really for you. It's going to be good for you, but it's not just going to be good for you because I am going to use you as a blessing for the entire world. I'm going to bless all of the families of the earth through you. And that's the way God has worked from the very beginning and will work all the way until the very end because he's not simply concerned with us as individuals, but he's concerned with us and loves us as a community and as a kingdom. He loves the entirety of his creation, and the gospel is a plan to redeem not only his people, but the entire world itself. And so we need to learn to see God's plan to save the world as exactly that. That God is efforting to save the world through the gospel. And we need to recognize that as our calling. That if you've put your faith in Christ, then God has made a promise to you. And he's called you out of nothing. He's called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. He's called you out of slavery to sin and into freedom. He's called you out of death and into life. And he says, I am making a promise to you that you are not going to perish, but you're going to have eternal life. I'm making a promise to you that one day I will wipe away your tears and all of the pain of sin and sickness and death that holds you down now will be taken off of you forever and you will be my child for the rest of eternity. That promise is yours, but it's not just for you. And it's our responsibility to take that message of the gospel and recognize our calling in that. And to see our salvation as a way to fulfill God's calling to Abraham to be a blessing to the world. To not hold our salvation so tightly that we're afraid to lose it because we can't. We've been given it so that we can give it away and so that we can share it with others and so that we can pour out ourselves the way that Christ poured out himself for us on behalf of other people in an attempt to see all the families of the world blessed by the gospel of Jesus. And then we get to verse 4. And it says, Abram went as the Lord had told him. And so Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old and departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions they had gathered, and all the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. You see, God called, 
Then Abram had to go. Then Abram had to leave. And it says that he took everything that he had. This promise that God gave to him was so good that he was willing to lose anything that he had. And this is not a world where it's easy just to pick up and leave. There was no U-Haul. And U-Haul is not super easy anyway. There were no moving companies. There was no one to help. Abram had to get all of his stuff together. And all of his family and all of his people had to gather their possessions, gather together, pick up everything, and move. And they didn't just do it once. They went to Canaan, and then they passed through the land of Shechem and the Oak of Morah. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then God came to Abram again and said to your offspring, I'm going to give you this land. And so Abram stopped for a moment, and he built an altar to remember that promise. And then he kept going. From there, he moved to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent in Bethel on the west of Ai. And there he built an altar to the Lord. And then Abram journeyed on. He was willing to go wherever God called him to go. And he never stopped chasing after that promise. He never stopped pursuing what God was leading him towards. And his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And I love when the New Testament speaks of Abram. It speaks of his faith. It doesn't speak of his conquests. It doesn't speak of his incredible works. It talks about his faith to follow after God. This is how Paul describes it. He says in verse 19 of Romans 4, He, Abram, did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. I I love this verse. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he drew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead, our Lord, who delivered us up for our trespasses and raised us for our justification. Paul said Abram had every reason not to believe this promise. He was old. His wife was old. He knew how life worked. He knew that this promise was an impossible promise, but his faith never wavered because of doubt. But he kept moving forward because he knew that if this God who introduced himself so fully throughout creation... If this God who was able to create something from nothing has a plan and a purpose for me, no matter how unlikely or unreasonable it may seem, I know without a doubt that he is going to fulfill that promise. And so when distrust entered into his heart, his faith was strengthened and he gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that God could do what he said he was going to do. And that faith was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul says that same truth that was true for Abraham is true for us as well. That life is filled with distrust and doubt. That the very promise that we're talking about this morning seems impossible. That anyone who believes in Christ won't perish, will have eternal life. 
the thought that the A, the God of the universe, could love us so much that he would care about us and want to save us, but also that everything that we're going to see in the book of Revelation in just a few weeks, all of those things are true for us. When we look at Revelation 20 and 21, that we have this promised inheritance that Peter says is imperishable and will never pass away, and that John says is so good that it will wipe away every tear and concern and brokenness and that we will be with Christ forever, that is an impossible promise, and yet we are called to stand fully convinced that God will keep it and that that kind of faith will be counted to us as righteousness and that that kind of faith should be what spurs us to walk and walk and walk until God tells us our work is done. And we can do that because we know that God has fulfilled his promise to Abraham, at least in part, because we are that promise. We are the fulfillment of that promise. We are God blessing all the families of the earth through what Abram did and through the promise that he made to Abram. We are the fullness of the gospel coming into vision. Jesus said, Abram saw my day and he rejoiced in it because Jesus knew that he was the fulfillment of that promise and he was going to break open the doors of salvation so that anyone, no matter where you've come from, no matter where you live, no matter the language that you speak, no matter the place from which you come, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and that same blessing that was given to Abram will be given to us as well. And so we've seen God introduce himself. We have no excuse not to recognize the awesome power and majesty of God. But now we've also seen God reveal his plan of salvation, laying the foundation of the gospel. And these 12 chapters of Genesis should give us a lifetime of worship and praise. They've already laid out for us a God who is intimate, but a God who is still so big that we could search the universe and still not be able to fully wrap our minds around who he is and what he's done. We see a God with a big plan that included us centuries and millennia before we drew a breath. That when God was speaking this promise to Abram, he was seeing your faces. And so that is the kind of God that we should worship freely. That's the kind of God that we should be willing to give everything to follow, to take all our possessions, to take everything that we have and say, God, here it is. Here's my stuff. Here's my junk. Here's my life. Whatever you want me to do with it, I will do. Wherever you want me to go, I'll go. However you want me to live, I'll live because I am fully convinced that this promise that you have for me is better than anything that I can lose to gain it. It's the kind of introduction that helps us know why we serve and why we worship. And so it's my prayer, and I hope it's yours too, that each and every week, each and every day, each and every moment, the message of these opening chapters of Genesis would resonate on our hearts. When we pray, we remember the kind of God we pray to. When we confess, we remember the kind of God we're confessing to. When we sing, we remember the kind of God we're singing to. And when we serve, we remember the kind of God that we're serving. And also keeping in mind that he is a God who values community and loves us so that we can love other people. And recognize that when we go out and when we love and serve others, we are doing it as a reflection of the God 
of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 and all of these passages of Scripture. And so let's strive to never labor in vain, to never worship in vain, but to always keep God's introduction close to our hearts so that we can do what we say we're doing every week, to worship him in spirit and in truth.